Trump loses on energy, thanks to Republicans. We talk about the fallout on nuclear, and reporters share their favorite acronyms. I'm Evan Lehman, editor of Climate Wire. Hey, I'm Robin Bravender, Climate Wire's deputy editor. This is the Climate Lead. We're talking about FERC and the NOPER at DOE this week. FERC is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. NOPER, notice of proposed rulemaking from DOE. FERC handed Trump a big defeat yesterday in killing an idea that would have subsidized coal and nuclear power plants for storing fuel on site. Ben Starrow, our energy reporter, is here to talk with us. Why is this important? Well, I mean, this is really the crux of the Trump administration's um, p uh, attempt to rescue coal. Um, you know, for all the a attention surrounding uh, what's happening at EPA and the Clean Power Plan, uh, what's really driving coal's demise are market conditions. And this was an attempt to sort of change those conditions so that coal could stay around for longer. But what's sort of interesting about it uh, beyond just the rejection is, is that it just shows what sort of limited power Trump has to actually effectuate that change. So who's the biggest loser here? Is it, was Rick Perry the one pushing this? Were there other people in the administration who were actually pushing this? Is it the coal industry who's... Who's the most sorry today? I mean, in political terms, the administration and Rick Perry in particular are big losers. Uh, coal is a huge loser. And, and um, you know, it, it means that the market trends that are um, hurting the coal industry right now are going to continue. You know, it's not entirely clear where the administration would go next to, uh, to really help coal out. I mean, really, the thing that would help coal most if it's natural gas prices went up. If that happened, you know, we'd have a different conversation. One thing that strikes me as interesting is this notion around resilience. And, you know, if, if Rick Perry's strategy or proposal gets utilities discussing resiliency, um, you know, that seems to me as an opening for potentially talking about climate change. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, when people talk about resilience, or when you talk to people about this subject, and they say, what is the biggest threat to the resiliency of our power grid? They end up talking about transmission and distribution. And it was to the point where one of the commissioners, um, Commissioner Glick in his concurrence, noted that in this recent New England cold snap, it was a power line outage at a nuke plant in Massachusetts that knocked out plant out. So it's like, um, and then we go back to the hurricanes that hit this year, and again, what are the big issues? It's not fuel supply shortages. Those are very, very rare. Um, they do happen, but they're rare. Um, the far bigger issue is power lines going down. How are you going to deal with power lines going down when you get more hurricanes, when you get more flooding, when all of these climate-related issues come up. So I think it is an opening uh, in that way to talk about climate change. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah, great. Um, uh, no matter what the Trump administration does for nuclear power, some plants have already closed. Energy Wire reporter Saki Ibrahim recently went to Vermont to check out a town 
uh, where the Vermont Yankee plant closed down a few years ago. It also happens that Ben grew up in the blast zone of Vermont Yankee. What was that like, Ben? The test, so on Wednesday afternoon at my school, uh, they had these like outdoor sirens and on Wednesday afternoons um, during sports practice, they would go off. Saqib joined us on the phone today. So you use Brattleboro as sort of this symbol of the 61 towns in the United States that host nuclear power plants that all could potentially be closed within a period of one or two or three decades. Am I right there? Yeah. And you're and you're found and you found in Brattleboro that there's a lot of smiling going on, but um, underneath there could be some real economic consequences that come soon. If, I, I guess when you go to a place and you don't know what you're going to see, uh, one might expect to see depression. And I think a lot of towns in America have expressed that um, because they were one factory towns and the factory went away. But that's not what I saw, and that's not what people were feeling like. Um, this is a place that felt like it had something new to move on to, um, had culture, had arts, had people were so passionate about beer, can just talk to you about beer all day. And uh, they have more festivals than you can shake a stick at. And there's just so much going on all the time. And even though it hasn't always been like that, it's really ramped up in recent years. And people kind of drive in there, uh, whether they're from New York or they're from Massachusetts or whether they're from Connecticut, they just kind of come through Vermont. And they stop at this cute little town. They hang out for a little while. They buy a sandwich at, you know, the coffee shop. They go to the bars. They hang out. They stay overnight at the hotel. And then they're out of there. And the question is, can you run a local economy on that? And local folks seem to feel like, yeah, you can. But then there's this contradiction you talk about. And I think what some other folks that uh, were very, I guess the folks that think very proactively about the economy there and that feel very empowered to kind of think about, okay, well, what are we doing in this, in this larger structural way uh, about the local economy here? Those people express a deep anxiety about the future of the place. And the reason is they feel like the big trends that actually determine what your place is like in 20 years take years and years and years and decades to play out because there are things like, are people leaving or are people staying? Are people young or are they older? Um, what kind of work are they doing and what kind of way is the work trending? Um, those people felt great anxiety. You And your, your reporting found that um, private sector wages in the Brattleboro area fell 5% in 2016, is that right? Yeah. And so some analysts see this as sort of the slow decline of the economy there. If you have a couple hundred workers laid off and that affects your local economy, your local private sector wages by 5%, you might have a problem. And I think that is an interesting question for the, for the other nuclear towns in America. Basically, how long does it take for something like this to play out? And really, are, what are we in store for? And so the underlying, the underlying premise of your story is that this town and the nation is unprepared to transition away from those nuclear power plants, right? I mean, there's, there is no transitional program set up for Brattleboro to regain that 5%. Not on the scale that they wanted. Um, 
I, I think the premise of the people I profile in the article is that they deserve, nuclear towns deserve, after they've hosted these reactors for so many decades, and now that they're stuck with the nuclear waste, really, um, and they built their economies around these things, they deserve some money to transition to something new and move on. Well, thanks very much. TTYL, thanks for the call. Speaking of all these acronyms. Always behind the scenes, but rarely heard, is Kim Yvonne Cannell, who is our producer at The Climate Lead. Hi, that's me. Robin and I walked around the newsroom asking reporters what their favorite acronyms were today. OSMRE, some people try to pronounce it OSMR, the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement. The RAINS Act, the regulations in need of scrutiny from the executive. OIRA, yeah, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, housed inside OMB, the Office of Management and Budget. SMACRA. Yeah. Surface Mining Rec or Control and Reclamation Act. Oh, you even know what it stands for? FLIPMA, SMACRA, RICRA. I'll go with NEPA. <laughs> WOTUS, Waters of the U.S. I have a couple acronyms in my Twitter bio. What are they? Let's just check to make sure <laughs> accurate. FOIA, FARA, LDA. IRIS, which is cool because it sounds like a grandmother's name, um, but it also uh, is very important for chemical assessments. And so I went up to uh, Lisa Murkowski, the chairwoman of the uh, Interior and EPA uh, Appropriations Subcommittee, and I said, hey, why do you want to get rid of IRIS? And she kind of looked at me blankly, and then I was like, IRIS, you know, like, and I had no idea what it actually stood for. And now I remember because that was awful. It was really, really bad. Um, so it's the Integrated Risk Information System. Well, obviously FERC. I think the, the most troublesome one is uh, the two are FERC and NERC. Now FERC and NERC are often in the same stories, often in the same paragraph. And uh, if you're tired and your thumbs aren't working and you write NERC when you meant to write FERC or FERC when you meant to write NERC, that's, a, that's bad. One is the North American Electric Reliability Corp and the other is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So like the coal industry got FERC'd yesterday. Once I was trying to think of a story I could write that would have one verb and only acronyms <laughs> about FERC, because everything that they deal with has a, uh, an acronym. Did you ever succeed? No. But it's, it's a goal. It's still there. Did maybe today's your day. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> that was Dylan Brown, Ariana Skybell, Ellen Gilmer, Mary Shaffrey, Ariel Wittenberg, Kevin Bogardis, Corbin Heyer, Pete Baer. That's it for the climate lead. TTFN. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> <laughs>